0: Good afternoon. Welcome to the Cato Institute. My name is John Samples. I'm director of the Center for Representative Government here at the Cato Institute. And again, welcome to our book forum today on The Quotable Jefferson, a new book from Princeton University Press edited by our guest John P. Kaminsky. Uh, Let me give you basically an idea. Many of you are no doubt are familiar with how our book forums proceed, but let me give you a basic idea. We'll hear from uh, our editor about the book for a a bit, and then our commentator today, Dr. Matthew Spalding from the Heritage Foundation, will give us his views, and then we'll have a question and answer session uh, that goes to the heart of the book and the heart of this remarkable man, uh, Thomas Jefferson. Uh, Thereafter, we will decamp around 1.30 or so, upstairs for lunch, and also, as you may have noticed, uh, copies of the quotable Jefferson will be available for sale and uh, Professor Kaminsky will be happy to sign the book uh, also. Uh, I would mo- notice in passing it's a very good price, very uh, priced very nicely for such a substantial book uh, by an important framer and founder of American political life. No one could doubt really the importance of framers and the founders of America. If you look at uh, the book markets in the United States over the last few years. There are many books on Adams, books uh, on Jefferson, and so on, and they all sell very well. And, of course, daily life and daily political life in the United States is affected by the founding ideas of this country. Only in the last couple of weeks, for example, a Supreme Court decision came down in an important campaign finance case, which included a dissent from John Paul Stevens, Uh, The case involved spending limits enacted by the state of Vermont, and uh, they were struck down by the court. Justice Stevens thought very much that they should have been upheld. And part of the reason why he he held that view, that is that the government should be able to put restrictions on campaign spending, the government of Vermont, was included in his dissent. He said, quote, I am firmly persuaded that the framers would have been appalled by the impact of modern fun- fundraising practices on the ability of elected officials to perform their public responsibilities, unquote. In other words, Stevens argued, channeling the, the framers, government, uh, the framers themselves would have lauded the campaign restrictions, the restrictions on spending, even in an area that no one doubted involved fundamental political rights, One thinks immediately of Thomas Jefferson, as one does so often. Jefferson said, quote, the natural progress of things is for liberty to yield and government to gain ground. That in a letter to Edward Carrington in 1788. Jefferson, unlike Stevens, was not praising the natural progress of things, of government, and of the yielding of liberty. He believed, as we know, He believed, as we know, in individual liberty, natural rights, and limited government. We are here at the Cato Institute today, we could just as aptly have been at the Jefferson Institute. And today we're here to introduce you and and to make the the general public more aware of this fine new book, The Quotable Jefferson, which is indeed the most comprehensive and authoritative book on Jefferson quotations ever published. It draws primarily on the papers of Thomas Jefferson, published by Princeton University Press. Uh, Professor Kaminsky has carefully collected and arranged Jefferson's pronouncements on almost 500 subjects, ranging from the profound and the public, the Constitution, to the personal and the peculiar, cold water bathing. So, if you need some advice on cold water bathing, you also will want to have a copy of this book. The Quotable Jefferson is the first book to put in Jefferson's words and context with a substantial introduction, a chronology of Jefferson's life, the source of each quotation, and an appendix identifying Jefferson's uh, correspondence and a comprehensive index. If Jefferson said something memorable about a topic, you are likely to find it here. The man who has done this service for us, John P. Kaminsky, is the founder and director of the Center for the Study of the American Constitution in the Department of History at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. He is director and co-editor of the documentary History of the Ratification of the Constitution, which has 19 volumes to date. He has written or edited 16 other books, including three on Thomas Jefferson, one that I would mention in particular, Thomas Jefferson, Philosopher and Politician, appeared in 2005. Please join me in welcoming Professor Kaminsky.
1: Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here at the Cato Institute. It's always a pleasure to talk about Thomas Jefferson. Uh, I have uh, known Mr. Jefferson for a long time. It was maybe about ten years ago or so I was speaking uh, to a group of support staff for uh, judges and the person introducing me asked me if there was something more that uh, she would like me to um, tell, uh, she, uh, that I would like her to tell to the audience. And I said, uh, well, you might tell them that I've been living in the 18th century for the last 35 years and that's uh, pretty much what I have been doing, working on the documentary history of the ratification of the Constitution. Uh, and uh, th- this is a, uh, uh, a um, project that's been going on uh, for over 50 years now. It'll take us uh, about um, 60, 65 years to document what the framers did in four months and what the American people did in nine months. But it will take us about 65 years to document that. And uh, we've gathered together uh, approximately um, 100,000 documents copies of documents, and we're publishing those right now. In the course of doing that, uh, I've uh, gotten to know the Founding Fathers very well. I read their letters every day. That's part of my job. Uh, And uh, in fact, in 1986, I was offered uh, the job of uh, doing the Edison papers, editing uh, the the, uh, Jefferson papers uh, at uh, at Princeton University and turned it down. Uh, Only about five years ago, I was again offered the job, the new uh, Jefferson Papers, the retirement series at the University of Virginia. Would I do that? My wife thought that was a good idea. Uh, She said, however, it would be a long commute for me to get home in Madison. Uh, She wasn't going to go to Charlottesville. And so I decided maybe I wouldn't go to Charlottesville either. Uh, But uh, I've gotten to know Jefferson very well over these years. Uh, and I'm sure most of you in the audience know Jefferson pretty well, too. He's one of the most um, uh, widely quoted of the Founding Fathers. Uh, he is also uh, one of the most admired and one of the most condemned. Uh, one of the reasons why he is one of the most condemned is uh, he does put things in writing. Uh, others of the Founding Fathers don't put uh, as uh, uh, damning material uh, in, in their writing. A man like James Madison, for instance, isn't going, isn't going to be criticized as much on some of the issues that Jefferson is criticized on, <coughs> slavery being one, largely because Madison doesn't talk so forthrightly uh, uh, about the issue. Uh, and so um, Jefferson has run hot and cold throughout our history. Um, and uh, I think we're in a period of time right now where uh, both spigots are on. He's running hot and running cold, both. Uh, And people have their their objection to him. But uh, uh, he is interesting to look at, uh, partly because of his writing. People ask me all the time about uh, uh, David McCulloch's book and Ron Chernow's biography of Hamilton. Um, I gave seminars to federal judges all around the country, uh, usually 10 or 12 of these a year, and the judges have read these biographies, and they ask me, what do I think about them, Uh, about about this 18th century material not being written uh, by 18th century scholars, and in fact, sometimes not even historians. And I say, uh, often what what happens is that uh, good writing covers a multitude of sins. Uh, And I think that's true. You can see in David McCulloch's writing, he's a wonderful writer, Uh, uh, but he's just not an 18th century historian. And so there are many, many errors, errors of omission more than commission uh, that are in, in his book. Um, and, and so this, this is true with Jefferson. His writing, the style of his writing, the fact that he uh, abandons the purist when it comes to grammar. Uh, he's more interested in style and how a sentence sounds uh, when he writes it. Uh, that's what he's getting at. That good writing that we get from him, is what has come down through the years. When you look at uh, what I think is the single most important sentence in the English language, it was written by Thomas Jefferson. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, among which are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now Jefferson didn't believe that quite literally at the time, the american people when they read that they didn't believe that either it was a goal it was a target one that we're still trying to achieve today very easy for us to point our fingers at jefferson and saying well look at his attitude towards slavery look at his attitude toward women and yet today we still have our faced with these problems 200 over 200 years later and we still haven't uh, reconciled our society to these issues of equality all of mankind. Uh, but that sentence, those words, and what Jefferson did uh, in the Declaration of Independence, taking all of what had been written in the 17th century, 23,000 pamphlets in English history that documented the uh, Stuart Kings, the English Civil War, the Restoration, the Commonwealth period, the Restoration, and the Glorious Revolution, 23,000 pamphlets. Another 5,000 pamphlets written during the American experience, the colonial experience. And he condensed that into five sentences, 202 words, the preamble of the Declaration of Independence. Just a remarkable achievement. And those words have come down to us uh, throughout history. And they've been used over and over again. They've been used by um, uh, abolitionists, to achieve uh, the eradication of slavery. They've been used to obtain the uh, suffrage for women, and for African Americans as well. They've been used um, in um, Eastern Europe to eliminate the grip of communist oppression. So these words are what is really Jefferson's legacy. That we can be uh, instructed by when we read them. We see what he has to offer. Uh, He's an imperfect human being, as all the the founders, all the framers were imperfect. Uh, No one's trying to suggest otherwise. Uh, We see imperfection uh, in our modern politicians as well. Um, I don't think that that means that we can uh, uh, discount what... uh, Uh, is there in the written legacy. And that's what we have uh, in in Jefferson's writings. Quite a few years ago, I had suggested to my publisher that we publish a little two-inch-by-two-inch book of Jefferson quotations, Uh, 26 pages, A to Z. Uh, He thought that was a a good idea, that it would be given out at um, conventions to get people to come into the, uh, the booth to look at the books that were being published. And so I started collecting uh, these quotations, and they were just wonderful, and they were voluminous. And I said to uh, the publisher, you know, this could be a 50-page gift book. And I brought along uh, some wonderful quotations from Jefferson to his daughters, because I knew that the president of this uh, publishing house had two daughters the same age as Jefferson's daughters when he was in, in France. And so these were wonderful quotations that uh, appealed to, to him. And he said, oh, yes, let's do this. And then it got to be 100 pages and then 150 pages, and they told me, stop, no more. Uh, and uh, I published uh, w- with them uh, Citizen Jefferson. It's a small gift book-type uh, collection of uh, uh, Jefferson's writings. And when Madison House was purchased by Roman and Littlefield, Roman Littlefield was not in that kind of market, and so they did not want to expand the Citizen Jefferson. I had been collecting uh, additional quotations uh, throughout the years and was ready to come out with an expanded version of that book. Well, they didn't, they didn't want to do that, and then Princeton University approached me about doing uh, the quotable Jefferson, and that's how uh, uh, this book came about. Uh, they had a quotable Einstein, and this is the second in their quotable series. There will be others that, that will follow. When we look at what Jefferson says, some of the things are very profound, uh, some of the things are um, uh, sort of silly in a way. Uh, some of the things describe his personal life as what John said about the, the cold water bathing. Uh, it sounds sort of silly, uh, but it's, it, it's, it's not um, necessarily all by itself. It's in a letter, that two actually in two letters, where Jefferson is talking about uh, his lifestyle Uh, What is his diet? What time does he get up in the morning? What time does he go to bed in the evening? Um, What does he drink? Uh, How much does he drink? Um, What are his physical ailments? And he talks about his illnesses that he had over the years. And he said, you know, I really probably have only had six or eight uh, serious colds in my life. Uh, And he's now, uh, when he uh, is talking about this, he's uh, in his mid-70s. And he says, I think it's because every morning for the last 60 years, I get up and I bathe my feet in ice cold water. And that must have done something to uh, help me ward off colds. So that's sort of an interesting thing. Um, I haven't taken up that habit myself, uh, so I don't, I don't know that uh, it really uh, uh, would, would work here. Um, but um, uh, there are wonderful things that you find in Jefferson's Uh, uh, writings. You can uh, see the um, kind of profound uh, things he writes, the Declaration of Independence and other areas of his public service. You see the things he writes when his wife dies. You don't get that writing uh, uh, with his wife because uh, he, like Martha Washington, destroyed the correspondence with his wife uh, when, when Martha Jefferson died. When George Washington died, Martha Washington destroyed all the correspondence. So we don't have that. But we're lucky enough that when Jefferson uh, was in Europe, he went to um, England at the behest of uh, John Adams for seven weeks to try to do some negotiations with uh, uh, the ambassador from Portugal and a representative from Tripoli. Um, and he saw a miniature press copy machine, a, an eighteenth century Xerox machine and He made um, the uh, detailed descriptions of it when he went back to France. He had three machines built for himself: one he sent to Madison, one he sent to William Carmichael, our charge d'affaire in Madrid, and one he kept for himself and it 's that copy machine that uh, that we are fortunate enough that he uh, had available to him when he met Maria Causeway his new love interest uh, in 1786. And we get, uh, when she goes back to um, uh, London, we get uh, the exchange of uh, about 60 letters between the two of them. And it's a wonderful correspondence. Uh, It's a correspondence that all the biographers of Jefferson look at because we see the real man here, uh, the personal Jefferson. Uh, And he writes uh, wonderful love letters uh, to Maria. Uh, She would like more, uh, not necessarily as long. Uh, She likes the long letters, but Jefferson says he can't write these long letters. He wrote the head and the heart letter, a uh, dialogue between his head and heart, the head saying don't get involved with people, especially with a married woman, but uh, also with women in general. The the scholar is happy going up to his cloistered room alone and being happy with your own studies. The heart speaks out definitely opposite to that and shows how uh, uh, to really be truly happy, you must um, be uh, sociable. You must uh, uh, have uh, contact and reliance upon others uh, and offer them solace in their times of difficulty that you will receive also. And so we get these wonderful letters to Maria Causeway, which would not have been available had he not uh, discovered this copy machine uh, because th- those are the only copies that are left. The originals, uh, we don't know where they're they're at. So he, has, he kept Maria's letters and he kept copies of uh, his own letters. And so we have that kind of correspondence to see the inner Jefferson. We see the Jefferson, the father, uh, instructing his daughters from when they're very young, uh, very tender letters, also instructing them as to uh, of their education and their... Um, their uh, attributes, the things that they will be able to uh, develop over the years. Because he told them, uh, 14 out of 15 chances you're going to marry nincompoops. That's the word he used, nincompoops. Uh, And so they had to develop their own intellectual uh, activities, things that would stimulate themselves. Uh, And and, uh, he left uh, two of his daughters in Virginia when he came to France, only brought Patsy with him. Uh, She was put into a convent, and uh, only six months later he found out that Lucy, two and a half years old, had died. And so he called for Polly to come over as well. And um, he gave very detailed instructions. Uh, And these are the kinds of things that uh, often come out in Jefferson's letters. You find a lot uh, about uh, how people lived at the time. Uh, uh, These are not just personal, these are not just grandiose uh, words that are written uh, in the public forum, but for instance, he he instructs his brother-in-law how Polly should be sent over to France. It should be on a British or a French ship, not an American ship, because of the danger of the Barbary pirates. Uh, The ship uh, uh, should come over between May and August because of the danger of uh, uh, winter travel and the danger of hurricanes. The ship should have made one uh, uh, crossing back and forth, but should not be um, older than five years old. Uh, He says, uh, you don't think about those things when you're on land, but when you're out in the middle of the ocean, you think about them very seriously. Uh, And so uh, he he told his brother-in-law, send Polly over uh, under these conditions. If these conditions can't be met, wait another year. Well, they waited two and a half years before Polly came over. And when Polly came over, uh, Jefferson was on a trip to uh, the south of France to investigate France, first of all, as minister to France, and also to get some healing to his wrist that he had dislocated. uh, On one of the last dates that he was on with uh, Maria Causeway, he jumped over a bush or a uh, fence. We're not sure. Uh, This little puppy dog in love, this 43-year-old courtier, Um, And he fell and dislocated his wrist And so this pained him throughout his life So he was away uh, when he got the word that Polly was coming And he sent a letter to Patsy Just a a darling letter uh, Saying that she was going to have to give sisterly advice to her sister Uh, Given the difference in age, four years difference And the mutual loss of their mother Patsy would have to be uh, the de facto mother And he gave her instructions as to how to teach um, uh, Polly, uh, how to teach her to be honest, to be truthful, to be a hard worker, never to get angry. There's no joy in being angry and no benefit from, from this. Uh, and uh, he, he said to Patsy, Whenever you, if you teach Polly this, she will be uh, forever admired by the world. She will be um, grateful to you. And you will have learned uh, these traits yourself when you instruct uh, your sister. And he told her, whenever difficulty came, uh, always do the right thing. And he said, you will make someone happy who loves you infinitely. It's that kind of personal letter that's so touching. He writes to um, uh, John Adams throughout his life, except for one 11-year period of time. From 1801, when uh, Adams left Washington, uh, at 4 o'clock in the morning, would not go to the inauguration. This was one of the great events in American history uh, that uh, uh, power was transferred peacefully from one opposing party to another opposing party. Uh, and, uh, However, uh, for the next 11 years, these two men uh, were estranged from each other. And it was through the uh, auspices of Benjamin Rush that they were brought back together in 1812. Never to see each other, but they started writing to each other. Uh, and um, it was in 1818 that Abigail Adams died. Uh, Abigail loved Polly, uh, and um, Jefferson loved Abigail Adams. Uh, Polly had stayed with the Adamses uh, in England when she, on her way to, to uh, join with, uh, with her father in France. Um, and so... Um, Uh, The letter of condolences that Jefferson uh, writes to Abigail Adams is just an unbelievable letter. I usually end my uh, addresses uh, on Jefferson uh, with that letter because you can't do anything after that letter. It's such an emotional letter. Uh, Usually uh, when I read that letter, half the audience is in tears. Uh, The first time I read it was in a retirement home. I speak to this one retirement home uh, for the last 15 years in a row. And uh, I was speaking on Jefferson, and they um, asked me the relationship with with the Adamses, and I told them that and then I, I had the letter there with me, and I read it, and I looked up, and everyone was crying. And I thought what a terrible thing i shouldn 't have done this, uh, but not not at all. Uh, when I finished, everyone was happy, and they were pleased uh, that that I had done so. Uh, I think that uh, uh, what I hope people will get from this book here uh, is is the um, The joy and pleasure and the sense of um, uh, edification that we can all receive from a person uh, who uh, writes poetically. That's what Jefferson does. He is a real poet. And I think uh, uh, if you have an opportunity to read the book, you'll enjoy it immensely. Thank you very much.
0: Thanks very much, uh, Professor Kaminsky. Our commentator today will be uh, Matt Spaulding. Matthew Spaulding is director of the B. B. Kenneth Simon Center for American Studies at the Heritage Foundation. He's also an adjunct fellow with the Claremont Institute, and he has taught American government at George Mason University, Catholic University of America, Claremont McKenna College, and Hillsdale College. He's co-author of A Sacred Union of Citizens, Washington's Farewell Address and the American Character, and he's the editor of The Founder's Almanac, A Practical Guide to the Notable Events, Greatest Leaders, and Most Eloquent Words of the American Founding, and notably also the executive editor of The Heritage Guide to the Constitution. He's also on the Board of Academic Advisors at Mount Vernon and State. Please welcome Matt Spaulding.
2: Uh, Thank you, John, for your uh, introduction and invitation to be here with you at the Cato Institute. Uh, And uh, thank you, uh, John, for your uh, putting this book together. Um, It's always a good thing to focus on the American founders, but in particular, it's interesting that in this time in which biographies of the founders are selling well in in, in the popular sphere, that we turn and look at their actual words. Uh, biography is is in many ways the best way to teach history uh, and reading the biographies can be a very powerful way to evoke what they uh, dealt with in their lives but we have their words their actual words uh, so that we can not only see their actions and understand their world but actually see them thinking through these profound problems they faced uh, in these times. Indeed when we pick up a a, a work of the founders' and read their letters and their correspondence in the, in the way that you've so uh, nicely evoked um, we can be there as it were a- and to think through the problems uh, I- as well um, I have to mention in passing that I have a, a great respect for what you've done having put together um, uh, some e- edited volumes of their writings uh, it's, it's, it's not an easy task especially in this day and age when we want to be uh, not only accurate and historically um, uh, accurate to them, but also get a full breadth of, of the, the work of someone like a, a Jefferson. And with Jefferson, we're immediately attracted to, but also aware of the extent of his knowledge and who we're, we're dealing with. The the, the breadth of, of the topics that he would write on and correspond about is an amazing uh, thing, uh, even in this day and age of computers and computers. Uh, uh, the internet, uh, what he could address uh, in in very profound ways many times uh, was uh, was uh, uh, amazing, and his correspondence uh, is just uh, beautiful uh, his His ability with the pinned is is uh, not to be not to be slighted. Uh, you, you evoke the correspondence with Adams and Jefferson, which i I think I would consider one of the greatest uh, correspondences in in human history. Uh, given the history of those two and, and how it ends so beautifully at their uh, death on the same day. Um, but of course it's his political writings and his political words that uh, in many ways are the most uh, interesting today and I'd, I'd like to make a few comments about those uh, in a way that uh, I think hopefully would, would shape some of our discussion and perhaps some, raise some questions which uh, you can clarify. since. As you might notice from my introduction, my expertise is actually more on George Washington than than Jefferson, so I, too, am a student here. Um, And when it comes to his political thinking, I I think we we do have to grapple with the fact that Jefferson is, in many ways, one of the uh, most difficult founders to deal with, not the least of which is because his his vast uh, interests and writings uh, cause us to deal with what sometimes seems to be... Uh, confusions or contradictions or changes uh, and things that uh, might seem to differ between his rhetoric, on the one hand, and political reality. Um, For instance, the distinction between his revolutionary rhetoric in time of the American Revolution, for which we must give him profound credit, but then his flirtations and dealings with the French Revolution and trying to make distinctions between them. Uh, the, the wonderful correspondence, uh, I believe, uh, l- later uh, post-American Revolution with James Madison in which uh, Jeff- Jefferson and Madison correspond back and forth about how to bring about constitutional change. Uh, Jefferson, much more enamored with the notion of a little revolution now and then, and yet it's Madison, who his fellow Republican partisan, who has to moderate Jefferson and remind him of the importance of uh, uh, essentially the contributions of the dead. Right, of, and of, of things like constitutions. Uh, and then, of course, we have the, the, the questions raised by Jefferson's very strong uh, writings about constitutional construction, the role of judges. Uh, and yet, during his presidency, uh, here we have Thomas Jefferson buying Louisiana by his own admission, a great violation of his actual theories of constitutional construction. Um, how we square these things between his, uh, between his writings, uh, his beautiful writings, and his practical actions uh, sometimes gets a little difficult. Uh, and I don't raise that as a matter of, of uh, criticism, but more as trying to grapple with how we square the importance of his writings about rights uh, and uh, the principles of the American Revolution and how as a practical matter these things are carried out. It seems to me, for instance, uh, that Jefferson's writings uh, in the time of the Declaration uh, and the Revolution uh, are not moderated by kind of Madisonian's uh, emphasis on constitutional structures, for instance. Uh, that seems to raise some interesting things about Jefferson in terms of what he might uh, have for us today. Indeed, it raises the broader question about Jefferson whether Jeffersonianism in the American founding needs to have added to it uh, things like Madisonianism, perhaps even Hamiltonianism, uh, or even more broadly Washingtonianism. Uh, I'm always struck with Jefferson by the fact that both Washington, excuse me, both Jefferson and Hamilton were in Washington's cabinet. And they fought vociferously, being the founders of the two first political parties. Uh, And yet it is Washington's prudence, if you will, his moderation that affects both of them and makes them work under the constitutional structure to fight out their differences, uh, not through the uh, radical problems of, of, of faction and the passions of politics, uh, but through constitutional structures. And it seems that both of them, Hamilton who accused Jefferson of being, being the radical Franco-Francophile revolutionary and Jefferson who accused Hamilton of being the monarchist. Both of them needed to moderate the um, uh, extremes of their rhetoric, rhetorical arguments uh, in favor of a more of a constitutional approach. Indeed, I think the difference between Jefferson's early Declaration era writings, uh, passing through his less than successful governorship, to his presidency shows the profound distinction between his rhetorical writing, as beautiful and powerful as it is. And by the time you get to his presidency, a more rather moderated Jeffersonianism, which we see in his inaugural addresses. We are all Federalists and Republicans now. Um, Having said that, I think that Jefferson makes uh, three profound contributions to the American argument for which we are greatly um, uh, in his debt today. Indeed, they're the three things that he has mentioned on his tombstone. I'll just mention them in passing and hopefully we can discuss them them further. They've, they've all been alluded to, I think, in some way already. The first, of course, is the argument of individual rights. Uh, and I profound, I, I agree wholeheartedly that the most important sentence written by Jefferson, indeed probably the most important sentence in the American experiment, is that from the Declaration of Independence, that all men are created equal and they are endowed by their creator with certain unable rights. The fact that Jefferson wrote that in light of his own thinking, Uh, as an Enlightenment thinker, influenced by Locke and others, but putting it into what he called the context of the American mind is for something that we are profoundly thankful. But that evocation of rights has to be squared with his ownership of slaves. Uh, It is true that in the draft of the declaration it did call for getting rid of slavery and there are other things we can point to, Uh, but in the end Jefferson concluded that we have the wolf by its ears. We can neither hold nor safely let go. (coughs) Justice in one scale, self-preservation in the other. He put it off to other generations. The generous temperament of youth, as he said, shaped by the flame of liberty. But in the end, it is is his words that led to the abolition of slavery. It was a promissory note, and he committed America to upholding its principles. Today, of course, we are saturated with rights talk, and few Americans... Seem to understand it fully. We are either too zealous of our rights, or we neglect them completely. I think Jefferson and a renewed emphasis on Jefferson helps to put us that in the right balance. Uh, secondly, Jefferson's writings on religious liberty, strewn throughout his correspondence and his public writings, the importance of religious liberty to the American founding itself, of course, is extremely uh, significant, and the founders never took religious liberty for granted. But it's easy, I think it's safe to say that Jefferson, along with James Madison, were perhaps the most vigilant of the American founders. Jefferson's writing about the dangers of establishments uh, and the extensity of, of European history uh, and what that might prove or what lessons we might learn from America are extremely important. For Jefferson, religious belief was a matter of individual conscience, and it was a cornerstone of every other liberty, and its defense was crucial for the maintenance of free government. He was eternally hostile to every form of tyranny over the mind of man." Yet at the same time we see in his uh, work as a legislator and as governor various laws and proclamations he made. Indeed, as uh, as president, while he did not proclaim national days of fasting, giving rise to the famous Danbury letter, uh, he did attend church and services held in congressional uh, buildings during his presidency. And of course famously wrote, his notes in the state of Virginia, and can the liberties of a nation be thought secure when we have removed their only firm basis, a conviction in the minds of the people that those are the liberties, uh, that these liberties are the gift of God. And of course, in the Declaration, these rights are endowed by their creator. Jefferson's uh, emphasis on the importance of the separation of church and state at the doctrinal level nevertheless did not prevent what we might call a certain mixing of religion and politics. That is, he understood the importance of religion, respected it, tolerated it. In the American con- context, understood that it was an important shaper, if you will, not only of our character, but of those uh, uh, things that made liberty a blessing. And thirdly, uh, Jefferson's emphasis throughout his writings uh, about education. Um, and here, the uh, we, we seen, uh, see a profound uh, twofold argument on the one hand that seems to be an argument for universal education and he uh, writes extensively about the need for education uh, across the board uh, at all levels uh, all levels of education and, and, and race and um, uh, wealth. A universal argument for the need for education uh, also an emphasis on civic education and education about rights interests and duties about men and citizens. Uh, but thirdly, we, we, within education, we see an argument for what we may call a selective notion of education, a sense of higher education, if you will, in many ways, uh, in the American context, the first, I would argue, profound uh, defense of higher education uh, in the American uh, political context. And here, of course, we, we extend our um, uh, thanks to him for his work in founding the University of Virginia. Um, let me close by just making a few points about uh, the debate about Jefferson, which I think is also uh, interesting. Um, in the broad swath of historiography, uh, I think it's fair to say that George Washington was in many ways understood to be the, the centerpiece of American, uh, the American founding and its argument for some time, indeed, up to the American Civil War. Uh, But at at that time, for various reasons, not the least of which is the fact that both sides in the Civil War claimed Washington as one of their own, uh, Washington anyways falls by the wayside. To be replaced after the Civil War uh, by a debate in the beginnings of the progressive movement in modern liberalism between Hamilton and Jefferson. Hamilton being the, the mean capitalist and Jefferson being the apostle of democracy. Uh, and it's interesting, indeed I think very important for our current debate, that the progressives uh, trying to mix Jeffersonian ends and what they called Hamiltonian means, thinking here of the work of Herbert Crowley, uh, essentially reshape both of them, both Hamilton and Jefferson. Uh, but Jefferson becomes in many ways the key figure that modern liberalism takes on as its own. Uh, just wit- witness the fact that in the works of Woodrow Wilson and FDR, Jefferson is the starting point. Uh, uh, largely ignoring the other founders. But it's also Jefferson uh, having dropped the baggage of of natural rights uh, and limited government. Jefferson is now the the apostle of democracy, but also the apostle of the modern state, the modern administrative state. Uh, The fact that FDR is the one who created, or at least uh, under his administration, created the Jefferson Memorial uh, is only um, uh, some evidence of that fact. And today, uh, in the modern debate of American conservatism, as largely a result of the effect of progressive historicism, uh, we, I think, too have lost the influence and importance of the writings of Thomas Jefferson. Uh, American conservatives roundly talk about uh, the American founders. Uh, They like to talk about the American founders and saving the American founding. Uh, But in many ways, it lacks a certain argument which Jefferson brings to us. Uh, and indeed, the recovery of that I think is important for the recovery of American conservatism and is a practical matter of the American founding. Today, for instance, we argue about big government, about its size and inefficiency. But from a Jeffersonian point of view, I think government would be slightly different. It would include those arguments for sure, but it would be more an argument about its moral effects, how it violates our rights, how it undermines self-government, indeed destroys the American experiment. That is to say that I think that the profound uh, gift of Jefferson is precisely what we started off with. That sentence in the Declaration of Independence. Jefferson's evocation of of natural rights and human equality as a basis of consent and thus the just powers of government is the centerpiece of this experiment in self-government in the United States. Uh, It is true that uh, when he wrote those words he he was speaking of the American mind. This was not, uh, uh, it was Jefferson's pen, but he was speaking for the founders generally. The recovery of that principle, it seems to me, is central to the idea of recovering limited government. Because in this day and age, when we argue about constitutionalism and limited government, and particular policies, uh, those are really empty arguments if in the meantime we don't recover this deeper and more profound truth uh, established by Jefferson, Uh, namely that all men are created equal. And so I would just conclude by, by uh, quoting Lincoln. Lincoln, of course, the great student of Jefferson, who was informed throughout his career by the principles of, of Jefferson. And I would agree when, when Lincoln wrote, All honor to Jefferson, to the man who in the concrete pressure of a struggle for national independence by a single people had the coolness, forecast, and capacity to introduce into a merely revolutionary document an abstract truth, applicable to all men in all times, and so to embalm it there, that today and in all coming days it shall be a rebuke and a stumbling block to the very harbingers of reappearing tyranny and oppression.
0: Before we thanks very much, Matt. Before we go directly to questions and answers, uh, Professor Kaminsky would like to say a couple words.
1: Well, I was very pleased with the uh, comments uh, made about Jefferson. Um, I just thought I might elaborate a little bit uh, to give you uh, uh, some extra information um, that uh, Matt uh, commented upon. Uh, I found that the the best way to find to to uh, really look at biography is not to read biographies, but is to go through the documentary editions. There's no way that you can get the same amount of material in any biography as compared to when you go through the papers of Jefferson and you see uh, what he's writing to people and what they're writing to him on a daily basis. Uh, When you see what uh, Adams is writing to Abigail when he's on, uh, uh, um, on the circuit in Maine in 1774 and no one will hire him, because uh, uh, he's, he's, he's a radical. And he'll taint your case if, if you're a radical. Uh, if you're a government man, you don't want him. The only people that will hire Adams is uh, people who want a great lawyer. Uh, and They need a great lawyer. But he's writing home uh, once, twice, sometimes, three, day, uh, three times a day to Abigail. And it's a wonderful correspondence. When you read that kind of correspondence, you really get to know the individuals personally a kind of way that you really don't when you read a biography, even the the best of the biographies. Um, Matt mentioned about Jefferson writing to all these people around the world. He wrote to the leaders in different kinds of fields. I I listed in the front of the um, introduction uh, the things that Jefferson did. And I think there are about 58 different things that he was expert in. And he used the vocabulary of these sciences. English was the, the language, but he used the special vocabulary. He was attuned to it, and he could write to the experts throughout the world, and so it's a wonderful thing that you see. Uh, Matt referred to the, he supported these little rebellions now and then. What's well, it's a, a reason. He, he felt that government was always a dangerous thing, and what he hoped for would, would be that people would stand up every once in a while, and they would alert government, you've gone too far, and eventually they would be put down. Not very seriously, Jefferson Hope, but it would be a signal sent to government that you've gone too far. You should look at what you're doing, your policies. Um, he, he felt that this was true in France, and he, published, he He wrote the Adam and Eve letter. I mentioned there are various letters that he writes that are given metaphorical names. The Adam and Eve letter is one of the most um, radical of the letters that he wrote. And he wrote it to uh, uh, William Short, his uh, uh, the charge d'affaires in France, his adopted son saying, don't write me any letters like this giving me the, the details of the the uh, reign of terror. It's only helping Alexander Hamilton. Stop with this writing. And he says, many guilty people were executed without trials, and many innocent people were killed as well. My friends, they must be considered, and they would consider themselves as soldiers in a war. And he said, uh, Pol Pot couldn't have said it any better, if it would take the destruction, the death, Of every individual, except for one Adam and one Eve in each country, it would be worthwhile to preserve democracy. Uh, That was a a very, very wild statement. It was only said one time, uh, but it was for effect. Um, He buys Louisiana Territory. uh, uh, There's some problems with this, that he felt that this was maybe not constitutional. Well, Jefferson believed that an executive... A responsible executive should, in fact, violate the Constitution on rare occasions, r- very rare occasions, when necessity required it. And then what you do is you appeal to the public. You admit what you did was wrong from a constitutional point of view. But uh, as we've been taught later on, the Constitution should not be a suicide pact. The Constitution should not be there to straitjacket us when the the goal that's right before us is so overwhelmingly uh, um, wonderful and opportunistic that the uh, the uh, the president in this case should in fact uh, violate the Constitution, but in that was his judgment maybe that he was doing it wasn't assured of that, but the Senate confirmed the purchase of Louisiana uh, by uh, its vote. Um, there's a reference, uh, Matt referred to George Washington several times, and I didn't mention uh, that the last hundred pages of this book uh, is taken from a database that I've been collecting for the last eight years called the Founding Fathers on the Founding Fathers, what they said about each other, looking at things like character, mannerisms, physical description. And uh, there's, there's probably about uh, 60 pages uh, or so, Jefferson describing his contemporaries. And then maybe another 40 pages or so, Jefferson, his contemporaries <laughs> describing Jefferson. And then Jefferson describing himself. And one of the best letters of all in that is Jefferson in 1814 describing Washington. And the, uh, the, uh, the character of Washington is just an unbelievable letter. I would uh, uh, advise you all. to to get a copy of it, uh, and one is right here for you uh, uh, if you want to read it. It's it's just a fantastic letter. Um, He he describes Aaron Burr as a crooked gun, uh, which in our our term would be a loose cannon, uh, just untrustworthy. You don't know where it's going to go. Um, uh, Matt mentioned Constitution writing. Uh, Jefferson and Madison wanted to rewrite the Virginia Constitution, but they had that, that enemy down there in in uh, the south side of Virginia, uh, Patrick Henry. And Madison wrote to uh, Jefferson in Paris, is this a good time, 1787, when we're adopting the, the federal Constitution, is this a good time when we should revise the Virginia Constitution? Uh, Jefferson wrote back, no, Patrick Henry's too strong. All we can do is pray for the death of Patrick Henry. Uh, <laughs> Um, uh, Matt mentioned uh, the slavery issue and, and uh, what a terrible thing uh, uh, it was. And Jefferson wrestled with this. And that and, uh, was right on line except for one thing, one mistake that Matt met, uh, made. And that is a mistake that has been made over and over and over again by historians uh, because it was made the first time and no one checked. The wolf Slavery is described as a metaphor. We have the wolf by the ears. We can't. We don't want to hold him, and we can't let him go. If you go back to the original, it's quite clear. It's we have the wolf by the ear. John Miller wrote a book called "Wolf by the Ears," the wrong metaphor that was there, similar but not the right, uh, the exact right thing. Jefferson wrote uh, ab- uh, about his early life, and he said, uh, "I read voraciously, and I." Um, Cop- copy placed everything. What does copy place mean? It means he kept a, a, a book uh, on everything he read, whether it would be Locke, and he transcribed the, the important sections of Locke, and he could go back to that. Historians again have drawn upon that, and they said uh, it. They, they wrote Jefferson's letter, and he said it was uh, um, over the course of years. It has been my pillow. Well, Jefferson used pillow as a metaphor quite frequently, but not in this regard. If you look at the letter, you'll see it's not pillow. He says, I read voraciously and I commonplaced everything. It has been my pillar. It has been my strength, not my pillow. And so sometimes these errors get perpetuated in, in, in writing. Um, I think that uh, metaphors are very important in Jefferson's writings. And in fact, I convinced the uh, production editor, Uh, at Princeton University uh, that in the index, I should have the entry metaphors and similes used by Jefferson. She didn't think that was a good idea at first. I gave her a sample. She loved the sample. And now there are over 300 subentries under metaphors and similes used by Jefferson in the book. Uh, uh, He uses, I said, pillow. When he talks about the hereafter, is there life after death? He says, I thought about this a long time when I was a youth, and I came to the conclusion that I could never uh, come up with the answer. And I thank my creator for giving me such a pillow of ignorance, that I don't have to worry about this. So pillow is important. I think one of the most important, uh, his favorite metaphor, is the word bosom. He loves the word bosom. Uh, It's far more maternal than sexual. He talks about the bosom of his family, the bosom of his books, the bosom of his farm. Uh, he talks about bosom friends. He talks to H- von Humboldt uh, about will the Spanish, will the um, uh, the people in uh, South America be able to establish democracies after they o- uh, overthrow the Spanish imperial governments? Jefferson says, not in my lifetime. Uh, They're they're children. They've been kept children by the priestcraft and by uh, the Spaniards. Maybe in your lifetime. But he says, um, when I'm in the bosom of my grave. So he talks about the serenity uh, of death. using the word bosom. My favorite line is when he's writing to Maria Causeway. She's afraid to go out in the ocean. It's a terrifying thing for many people. Uh, And so she will never come to America. He will never live in England. And so he writes to her when he's going back uh, to America. He says, when wafting on the bosom of the ocean, I shall pray it to be as calm and smooth as yours to me. Isn't that a wonderful sentence? wonderfully romantic (laughs) sentence. Uh, Finally, I'll I'll end um, uh, with uh, uh, the the statement uh, uh, about education. Jefferson believed in a uh, a meritocracy, and he wanted free public education from uh, early uh, general education through college education, and that's what the University of Virginia was to be. That didn't mean that uh, uh, that was publicly supported. It didn't mean that uh, education wasn't there for others as well. But Jefferson definitely was wholeheartedly in favor uh, of public education. Thank you.
0: All right, now we would like to have some questions from the audience. Uh, What we will do is please raise your hand. I'll recognize you. Then wait until the microphone arrives so we can all hear your question. I'd also ask that you identify yourself and any affiliation you might have. And finally, please have your uh, comments in the form of a question. You can direct them to either or both of our speakers today. In the back, please.
2: Ken uh much has been made that uh, George Washington freed his slaves on his death and Martha's slaves upon her death, but Thomas Jefferson only uh, freed a few of his slaves. My question is, did Virginia pass any laws
1: prohibiting uh, manumission of slaves between the time that Jefferson died, uh, excuse me, between Washington died and Jefferson died, and or were
2: Jefferson's slaves encumbered by his debts?
1: I don't believe that Virginia passed any legislation that changed uh, the manumission of uh, slaves, uh, making it more difficult for Jefferson to free his slaves than for Washington to free his. Washington freed only one slave in his will. That was his valet, personal valet. If John wanted to be freed, he could be freed. If he didn't want to be free, he could stay on the plantation. In any case, he was given a pension. Uh, Washington's slaves and his wife's slaves had intermarried and so Washington uh, felt uh, uh, and was rightly, uh, was correct that he would die before Martha and so he provided that once uh, Martha died all the slaves would be freed rather than uh, freeing some husbands and yet wives would be left in slavery uh, and so forth. And so um, when, when Washington died it didn't take very long before the slaves realized that their emancipation was uh, predicated on Martha's death. And it didn't take long before Martha understood that the slaves knew that. And so she freed all the slaves uh, at one time, uh, January 1st of uh, 1801, she died then in 1802. Uh, Jefferson did have serious financial problems. Uh, And that's the primary reason why uh, he did not free all the slaves. Uh, As you you well know, the um, the, um, accounts of Sally Hemings and Jefferson, uh, the latest scholarly position on that is uncertainty. Uh, We're not sure that Jefferson was the father of Sally's uh, uh, children. We know for a fact he was not the father of the first child, um, but uh, a Jeffersonian could have been. And there's discrepancy as to whether it's uh, Thomas Jefferson or um, Randolph Jefferson. And I think the scholarly community um, that is not being pushed one side or the other, looking at the evidence that's there will come out in favor of Randolph Jefferson a- and it's, it's a lengthy uh, argument that that has to support this. But um, uh, in any case uh, Sally Hemings uh, was related to Jefferson. Uh, uh, Martha Jefferson and Sally uh, Hemings were half sisters and so uh, Uh, these sons that were freed, uh, the Hemings brothers, um, were at least nephews, maybe sons. Uh, They could pass for white and they all had occupations that would give them a trade whether that be a blacksmith, a carpenter, or French chef. So these are the reasons why Jefferson, I think, freed uh, those few at the end of his life. He went out of his way uh, to do that and he could not free all because he was in debt by $120,000 at that time, which was a lot of money.
0: Other questions? Down here, please. Mal Klein, Accuracy in Academia. Question. uh, David McCullough's errors of omission. What is there on the academic side to fill that void, other than your own
1: works? Uh, I, I would say, you know, I'm not a um, 100% behind Joe Ellis. Joe has had some problems over the years, and he has taken some license in his American Sphinx book, which I think is the book that people would like to have given him the Pulitzer Prize for. But like John Wayne, uh, he, uh, he got the pul- he got the uh, Academy Award for True Grit. I don't think that was his best work. And I don't think uh, Founding Brothers was Joe Ellis' best work. I think what was his best work was Passionate Sage. That was Joe's first big book, and that was on Adams. And so uh, that is a book, I think, that is a far more accurate book. Um, Peter Shaw, looking at the personality of uh, John Adams. There there, there are two great books there. Uh, uh, You can look at the... uh, the correspondence between John and Abigail is now all on the internet, all 1,161 letters, the transcription uh, on the left-hand side and the uh, manuscript on the right-hand side, masshist.org slash digitaladams. Therefore, all of you to see, you can go through the correspondence yourself. It's there. Uh, I, I'll give you an example of what I meant by omission. Uh, uh, Adams himself and McCulloch McCulloch falls in love with Adams, as any biographer uh, falls in love with their subject. That's not uh, unusual. Uh, Adams believes he did such a wonderful job in uh, the Netherlands. He got this loan. He went there to get a loan to save the revolution. Well, um, uh, what McCulloch uh, mentions is yes, there was one intervening action there, that is Yorktown occurred, that uh, loosened up the, the Dutch bankers in giving the loan. But that's all. Two other things happened. One was that the British uh, pulled up Pearl Harbor. That is, they attacked St. Eustatius, the Dutch island, a a smuggling entrepot in the West Indies. They captured over 100 ships. In essence, it was a declaration of war against the Dutch. So the Dutch didn't have to uh, uh, worry about going to war. They were pulled into the war by the English. And then finally, the the other thing that McCulloch either doesn't say, doesn't know perhaps, is that Franklin, the nemesis of Adams, Back in France, has gotten the French government to back the back uh, to back the loan that is going to be obtained from the Dutch bankers. So the Dutch bankers are not at any risk whatsoever. They're getting wonderful interest rates, and the the French government is backing their loan. McCulloch doesn't mention any of those things except for Yorktown, and gives total credit. Uh, to Adams, when really without uh, Franklin uh, back there and without the British attacking the Dutch, it's unlikely that uh, Adams would have succeeded.
2: Uh, Um, I I agree with everything you said. The the only thing I would add there that I find fascinating about these these books currently being written about the American founders is the very obvious, uh, over time, move away from academic writings into popular writings. Uh, and that most of the scholars who are doing some of the best work on, on historical figures, not just the founding, but now there's a resurgence of interest in writings on Lincoln, uh, are, are largely r- leaving uh, academic publishers and the confines of their, of their academic life to write popular books. Now part of it is there's a market for those things, and I, and I grant that. Uh, you know, Joel S. wants to make some money in, in publishing books and he sees where the market is. But there's a certain freedom they get uh, when they write that way. And, and I think that they, um, uh, in, in doing so, are rediscovering, if you will, a, a what was really an older way of writing biographies, which is trying to capture as best they can the thought and action of an individual person, this, this particular individual in, in in a historical context. Which is say they study their statesmanship, and they grab at something, they perhaps uh, imperfectly, but they get something. Uh, in that history that I think the modern modern academic thinking, uh, which has kind of gone astray, is incapable of grasping, which is the importance of, of the, the mind of these individuals making decisions under particular circumstances, explaining it through their correspondence, justifying it uh, in the times. So I'm actually very uh, optimistic about this surge, if you will, uh, uh, of interest, uh, and I would just point out that this goes back to the uh, kind of 1970s when you started getting a a renewed interest in things like the Federalist Papers, uh, works like those of Martin Diamond and others. It kind of begins in the Academy, but then uh, moves outward. Uh, And I I, I think uh, uh, that is uh, uh, all very good.
1: I I would echo what Matt says. Uh, uh, It's been an unfortunate thing that the Academy has decided to write to itself. And uh, that has has been um, a tragedy, really, has left the American public out, uh, at least in in history. In the 19th century, the historians who wrote our history were often, uh, uh, this was their avocation, they were wealthy men, and they wrote to the public, and they sold thousands of volumes. And the people read it because it was understandable to them. Nowadays, unfortunately, historians are writing to four or 500 of each other, and that's all. It's it's, uh, uh, a terrible thing. Um, but, uh, you know, the, I, I would encourage those who are writing for the general audience, and this means not just in uh, books, but also on TV. Uh, we, we saw only about, what, four months ago, there was a, um, a two-part series on John Adams. And David McCulloch was the big talking head in this. And what we saw was uh, uh, the reunion of the family in uh, London and then in Paris. Uh, that is, John, had, uh, John Adams and John Quincy Adams had been abroad for almost four years, and Abigail comes over. And what you see is the scene in Paris at a big table with John and his two sons, Tommy and Charlie, and John has a compass, and he's showing the, the boy something. And then you've got uh, Abigail with uh, Nabby, Abigail, Jr. She's talking, and then you've got Thomas Jefferson with John Quincy Adams. Well, the last two are fine. That is, Jefferson uh, thought of John Quincy Adams as almost an adoptive son, and Nabby was there with her mother. The problem is that Charlie and Tommy were back in Massachusetts. They were not there in Paris. And so this is a made up story. There's a far better story that could have been told when they got together in London and when Abigail uh, heard that John Quincy was there next door getting his hair done, and he comes in and she doesn't recognize him. The little boy now is a man. And the the man comes up and says, Mama, Mama, and she recognizes uh, his eyes. She said she wrote to her sister and she said, I got a, a, a letter from my friend, meaning John Adams, her husband. When he found out that Abigail was there, he said, the next day I was 23 years younger. And Abigail said, when I saw my son and my daughter and I looked at them together, I didn't feel 23 years younger. I felt very matronly. Uh, it was that was a far better scene to show in the mo- in the television than the incorrect scene of these people together in Paris when Tommy and Charlie were not even there more questions in the front here, please
0: uh,
2: Patrick McNamara with human events this is a question for mr. Kaminsky um, I guess in the theme of the
1: of quotes, maybe you could talk a little bit about falsely attributed quotes to Jefferson. and I think in particular, currently the anti-war movement is quite fond of the
2: uh, uh, dissent is the highest form of patriotism quote, which as near as I understand is not a, not a Jefferson quote and maybe totally made up
1: out of whole cloth. Did you find in your research other type quotes that are used or misattributed or um, total fabrications? Well, there are. I, I I haven't used that in my research. I, I don't. Uh, the the way I did the research on this book, and the way I do most of my research is going to the primary source material, uh, in in the uh, uh, in the documentary editions that have been published, uh, the new editions uh, first and foremost. But then when they're not complete go back to the 19th century editions and there are uh, several of them with with Jefferson uh, that I used and then go to the uh, originals and then what I would do how I found out that uh, it's not ears uh, wolf by the ears and how I found it, it wasn't uh, um, uh, it was my pillow instead of pillar is every quotation that I had here. I went back to the originals and we're very fortunate that we, we have the um, um, founding fathers um, a collection uh, American Memory from the Library of Congress and you can go and look at the originals on your uh, your computer screen and those that I couldn't find there uh, that were elsewhere uh, I uh, was able to uh, get the staff of the Jefferson Papers at Princeton to assist me to look at the documents and verify the quotations and so I didn't have the problem of these um, uh, fictitious letters uh, uh, since I wasn't using secondary material. But definitely they're there, whether it be for gun control uh, or whether it be uh, uh, for any number of subjects. People will uh, create um, letters and they'll use them just as uh, this, uh, this one um, uh, uh, attachment you probably have seen on your own uh, computer uh, that talks about the Uh, signers of the Declaration of Independence and how they suffered so much. How many of you have seen that? Uh, It's been going around for a a decade and that uh, every one of the signers of the Declaration they suffered so terribly and I give examples. Robert Morris ended up in debtor's prison. Well it's true he ended up in debtor's prison but not because he signed the Declaration. Uh, He's known as the financier of the Revolution. Uh, Many historians uh, turn that around saying the revolution financed Robert Morris. And Robert Morris became a very, very wealthy man. His speculation was so uh, uh, egregious, however, that uh, when the deck of cards, uh, the the, the fragile deck of cards of his credit fell apart, uh, he, he became a debtor himself. But not because he signed the Declaration. So there's a lot of fictitiousness that's out there. And you always have to be aware of that. This is true uh, of anything that's on the, on the internet. Uh, and it's, it's true of letters as well. There have been attempts to uh, falsify letters. Uh, I haven't had that experience primarily because I haven't been using uh, that kind of source.
0: Uh, Please note, though, that the quote I used at the front of our intro I did not make up. Although I did use a secondary source on it. I didn't see the original. Did you want to say something, Matt?
2: I I was just going to point out, because this is true for almost all the founders, Tocqueville, there's kind of these spurious Tocqueville quotes. Um, But what it really points to is the fact, and this is why America is so unusual, right? There's something about America in the fact that it was founded that requires current political debates to always go back and justify their actions in light of the thought of the founders. Hence, the need for creating quotes or misusing quotes, which is probably even more, uh, more the case, taking them out of context. I mean, American politics historically turns over precisely a debate about what the American founding means. Right? This is what liberalism was all about. FDR, they wanted to re- re- reclaim it and to reinterpret it, so to speak. Um, uh, and, and so it, it just underscores, I think, the, the, very, the, the very importance of people like Jefferson, but also their documents and the other founders, uh, the debates over the Constitution, uh, which I think it just underscores the fact of the importance of making sure that, since that is the coin of, of the realm, so to speak, how important it is to make sure we uh, know the right arguments, understand uh, those concepts, are familiar with them enough so that when someone does quote the founders, uh, we can have a sense about whether that's being done accurately or not and, and the, the, the ability to go back and check. Uh, because it is true, that our, I, th- I think it is, is true even today, uh, that our politics ultimately does turn up on the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, uh, which is provi- why it's so hotly debated and so important to our future.
0: Gentlemen gentleman in the back on my right. microphone's coming.
1: Hi, I'm
2: David Bowes with Cato. Uh, Matt Spaulding's uh, reflections on the founders and the importance of the founding remind me of a question I've, I've asked, I guess, rhetorically. So let me ask it as a real question to somebody who ought to know. What does it mean to be a conservative in a country founded in liberal revolution? Do you want me
0: With special emphasis on Jefferson.
2: Uh, no, no. I, I think uh, I think that is the question, and I, I, I agree. Um, uh, and I'm glad you asked that. I mean, the the um, uh, I think what it means to be a conservative in the American context is to conserve the liberal principles, of the American founding. Uh, that is, if uh, that is the divide. I think in the conservative debate is precisely over uh, the status th- of the of the Declaration, the writings of the founders, uh, and I think that it has to be grounded in a conception. Uh, that recognizes a, a rights argument. Now, I think what makes uh, what makes it conservative as opposed to liberal is that the American argument, including Jefferson, their concept of rights is grounded in human nature; That is it's it's moored into something, uh, and it's moderated by constitutionalism, which is why I think you have to mix Jeffersonianism with Madisonianism in a way, uh, right? But I think what conservative com- becomes essentially is a um, uh, a reclaiming, if you will, a uh, re-establishing a proper understanding of those principles. or uh, To put it in another way, I think what American conservatism is, is not a uh, defense of European feudalism, right, which is what Lionel Trilling and others always thought it meant in the 1960s. Uh, what it is essentially its defense of the moderate Enlightenment, right? It's a defense of Adam Smith and, and Lockean uh, principles as they then are laid out and play out in the Amer- context of the American founding as opposed to, say, the more radical enlightenment arguments uh, which I think go through the French Revolution and Rousseau and then to Hegel and the German thinkers uh, which are ultimately more problematic and much more radical and lead to the various isms of the 20th century. Um, So that's how I would answer your question.
1: As I mentioned, I give seminars to federal judges all over the country and I I was in Kansas City about a month ago and one of the judges raised the, the question. Uh, Isn't it a sorry state that we're in when it's reported that uh, only a very small fraction of the American public understand, know, the five rights that are in the First Amendment? One of the more liberal judges took the opportunity and said, five rights in the First Amendment? I've been given 25 over the last few years. (laughs) (laughs) So we have... uh, um, Uh, An activism that's there that many people uh, don't like to see in Detroit uh, several years ago uh, in giving a seminar there um, uh, one of the um, senior judges came in at the lunchtime left at lunchtime uh, when he was finished didn't stay for the seminar Uh, and uh, some some of the judges said uh, congratulate him on a newspaper article. in in that day's newspaper. And it was congratulating this judge who for the last 25 years was running the city waterworks because the city couldn't do the job. And the judge uh, made a ruling 25 years ago as to what was needed and we haven't gotten what was needed in Detroit and so the judge is still running the waterworks in Detroit. So I think uh, uh, there are certain founding principles that we can look at, uh, certain basic facts Uh, that both uh, liberal and conservatives can agree upon that uh, is not functioning the right way today. That, yes, we would like people to know what those five rights are. We would like to limit the First Amendment to five rights and and not many, many more. Um, And uh, we would like judges to be judges and not administrators uh, uh, as they often have been of late. I'd like to follow up and uh, finish with uh, a
0: question that uh, I think addresses the same question David Bowes has just uh, raised. Uh, Pauline Mayer, in her book on the Declaration of Independence, as I recall, says that the words in the Declaration endowed by the creator, that if you look closely at uh, Jefferson's draft, that the words uh, by the creator are not in his original draft but were added by an editing committee later. And that it was done, um, you get the impression from the book, largely as a way to make the the uh, document more persuasive and to speak more to the, the sort of culture of the time. My first question, is that correct? Is that about uh, Jefferson's draft and uh, my memory correct about it? And if so, does it tell us something about Jefferson that is that, in a sense, he saw natural rights as being floating free of a kind of creator that you could have a
1: natural rights regime based on secular considerations. Jefferson was a believer in God. He was a deist and he certainly uh, uh, believed in the writings of Jesus. Uh, he certainly he felt that he was a Christian in the best sense of the word. Uh, he didn't believe that Jesus was divine, uh, but he did his cut and paste job and created his own Bible, taking the words of Jesus. And these are uh, some of the best ph- philosoph- philosophical words that we can live our life by. Um, uh, when it comes to writing the Declaration of Independence, um, first of all, we should understand the writing of the time. Uh, we don't have the same rules of plagiarism back then as we have today. And in fact, um, there was the sense that you must build upon others. You cannot be totally original in what you're saying. You must build on others. And so Jefferson uh, would readily admit that much of what was in the Declaration came from others. It was in the air, he says. His job was to give the right spirit and tone to it. Uh, It's hard to determine how that document was actually written. There are several different versions. The version that uh, John Adams uh, gives is that there was a subcommittee. He and Jefferson were in the subcommittee. And uh, as they met, they uh, worked out what should go in the document. And Jefferson said, Mr. Adams, you go and you write it. And Adams's response was, no, not at all. First of all, you're a Virginian. I'm from Massachusetts. Remember all the conflict had been in Massachusetts later on when he talks about comparing himself to Washington, he says the same thing. He's from Virginia, and we know all Virginia geese are swans. Uh, That's not the case in Massachusetts. Uh, He says, you're a southerner. I'm a northerner. Uh, He says, uh, uh, I have everybody attacking me. Uh, He doesn't say these words, but he says it about Washington. He knew how to keep his mouth shut. The false teeth helped with Washington. Uh, he had false teeth that wanted to pop open all the time and he had to keep his mouth shut actively so that they would not open up on him. I often say politicians should take that as an example today uh, and, and keep their mouth shut more often. But uh, uh, Jefferson, as as Adams says, didn't speak more than three sentences in a row in Congress. He was not uh, the orator. Uh, Adams couldn 't keep his mouth shut, and he angered everybody, and so he knew that anything that he would pen would be uh, 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 changed much more readily than something that Jefferson would write and Finally, uh, uh, Adams said to jefferson uh, i 've seen your writing. you are a far better writer than I am, and I think that 's probably true. Adams was not a bad writer; he was a very good writer, uh, but Jefferson had this poetic quality about him now uh, When it comes to the subcommittee, Adams says, I I don't remember if we did any changes changes whatsoever. Now, Pauline Meyer would like that others contributed uh, to this. Uh, There were similar declarations by towns throughout New England, and Jefferson was using uh, some of this. He said, I didn't have any one thing before me. It was in the air, and he was taking this and bringing this all together. I, I wouldn't be surprised if Jefferson didn't have the Creator in there. At the end, uh, I don't have the words right in front of me, uh, but but Jefferson says that we bind uh, ourselves together uh, uh, with uh, 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 the, the hope that the uh, uh, the Creator will will be supportive of of us, and uh, we pledge our uh, our uh, uh, lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. And I used to say to my students, take that sentence home and rewrite it. Do it better. And no one has written it any better. Uh, And I said it once to some judges, and a colleague of mine was there, and he said, I could write it better. And I said, how would you do that? And he said, I would write what Jefferson wrote originally. He didn't have the reference to God in the conclusion. That was put in by Congress. Absolutely no doubt about that. We know that that was put in by Congress, and Jefferson would have preferred that that not be put in, that it would be a secular revolution. And so I'm not positive about the first, but I wouldn't be surprised if Jefferson didn't have it there. But Jefferson was also, this was a political document, and he was appealing not only to the countries of the world in explaining the, the necessity, and he uses that word over three times, Necessary or necessity, that's the key word, uh, that forced Americans to declare their independence. Uh, but he was also writing this to Americans. Uh, uh, perhaps half of them at this time didn't think that it was necessary and that this was the wrong way to go. And so he would bring all the ammunition he could in this document. Matt, would you?
2: Yeah, just a, a brief comment. Mike, um, my, my, uh, if I'm remembering correctly, is that the difference between the draft and the final uh, there were um, there, there's essentially five broad references to God in the Declaration, two of which are added later by the Continental Congress. Uh, I believe the Creator reference and the Divine Providence reference, but I, I'm not e- exactly right. But it did go through an editing. But, but what, what, what strikes me about that is that, from what I can tell, that's not something that Jefferson objected to. Um, Uh, He was more concerned that they dropped out his his references to a condemnation of slavery, for instance. Um, But what what strikes me about the Declaration, in my sense of Jefferson, but more broadly my sense of the Founders, uh, meaning those who were involved in this process and and thought in these terms, was that they really thought they were uh, making an argument that had uh, that was kind of twofold that could be acceptable from a point of view of philosophy, from a Lockean philosophy. Um, but also uh, acceptable from a point of view of divine, uh, from providence, from a biblical tradition. Uh, and so you can read the Declaration either way, uh, and I think that Jefferson, being intelligent uh, and also writing a public document, wrote it that way, uh, and that in many ways is the great fusion, if you will, of these great arguments of reason and revelation, indeed the fusion of modern political conservatism that makes it, uh, makes it work. But I would just point out in, 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 in closing is that, is that uh, the debate over those things um, does not neglect the fact that there was overall agreement and no objections to grounding the declaration with the starting point being the self-evident truth of human equality and, and rights. And that's the, that's the, the, the most important thing. The, the, the source of those rights being from revelatory tradition or from philosophy is, is, an inter, is a, a great and important uh, debate, uh, abstract debate, if you will, but in the context of politics, um, uh, there was profound agreement. And I think that's the, 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 the virtue of Jefferson's writing and also the great uh, uh, achievement, if you will, of the American founding.
0: On that point, I would like to once again thank everyone for coming today for this very interesting book forum, I and mean to invite you upstairs to lunch and also, if you haven't yet, to purchase a copy of the quotable Jefferson. Thank you.